Let's pray. Uh, Almighty, holy, righteous Father, as we look today at your word, we pray that we might rightly understand who you are and that we might uh, come to you only in the way that you want. Please give us a bit of fear today, we pray, as we look at your word, that we may appropriately be the people that you want us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things people dislike most about Christianity is this. They don't like its exclusivity. They don't like the teaching that Jesus is the only way to God. Let me quote from the American pastor Tim Keller. He says this, During my nearly two decades in New York City, I've had numerous opportunities to ask people, what's your biggest problem with Christianity? What troubles you most about its beliefs or how it is practiced? One of the most frequent answers I have heard over the years can be summed up in one word, exclusivity. Kelly gives a couple of quotes from people in New York City. This one's from Blair, 21-year-old lady. She says, how could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Well, there's this one from a bloke called Jeff, no relation to me. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and the other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. People today... They hate the idea that there could only be one true way to worship God. They hate the idea that anyone could claim that they have that true way to worship God and that other people are wrong. People say it's arrogant. They say it's intolerant. They say it's dangerous. I don't know about you, but I find this has an effect on my thinking. I don't want to seem arrogant. I don't want to seem intolerant. I don't want people to think I'm dangerous, the enemy of world peace. I don't want people to hate me. And so what I'm inclined to do, I'm inclined to just keep my exclusive views to myself. Keep a bit quiet about it all. I even, I even maybe indulge in the occasional rationalisation. It doesn't matter that I keep my embarrassed silence because, well, maybe people will be okay as they are. God's very loving. Maybe God won't mind that other people don't rely on Jesus. Are you like me? Do you find the exclusivity of Christianity a bit of an embarrassment? Do you, do you keep silent? Do you rationalise your silence by thinking, well, maybe people will be okay without Jesus? You ever like that? In our studies in Exodus, we've come to chapter 32. Over these last few chapters, you may remember, Moses has been, can you remember, he's been up on Mount Sinai. And God has been speaking to him, giving him all the instructions that we've looked at over the last three or four weeks. How to build the tabernacle, uh, what furniture had to go in it, what the priests were to wear, how to ordain them, all this stuff about how Israel were to worship God. Well, it's now taken 40 days 40 days. Moses has been up that mountain for more than a month. 
And now what we do in chapter 32 is, is we go back down the mountain and we see what's happening with the rest of Israel. We see what's happening to Israel as they wait for Moses up on the mountain. Now, as you can imagine, Israel are worried. I mean, they're in the desert. Their leader has disappeared and it's not hard to work out what's happened. Someone disappears for 40 days in the desert and it's pretty obvious. You don't even send out search parties. He's lying dead somewhere. It's obvious. You don't survive 40 days in the desert on your own. Israel are worried. And, of course, they're doubting Moses. I mean, so much for Moses being God's messenger. So much for Moses leading them to the promised land. Here he is dead in the desert. So here are Israel, stuck in the desert, no leader they can see, and with no God they can see. And somehow they've got to get themselves to the promised land. And you need to remember, these are not Christians we're dealing with here. In fact, they're barely even Jewish. Um, these are not people who are used to monotheism. They've only recently been reintroduced to the Lord, Yahweh, as their God. For the last 400 years they've been in Egypt, and the vast majority of them have been worshipping Egyptian gods, uh, gods who are represented by idols, gods who are worshipped in pagan ways. And so in their worry, in their stress, Israel decide to do what for them is the obvious thing. They make themselves a representation of the God who's taken them out of Egypt. It's obviously a God who's taken them out of Egypt. They've seen all these miracles. Now they want to see him. They want an image of God to, to help them worship as a, as a focus of their devotion and as a visible representation of God that they can follow to the promised land. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. The, the thing that I... The thing that I possibly hate the most in the whole world is this. Driving in the car with my family, and Carmelina, my wife, says, can you just stop here at the shops? Uh, I'll pop into the shops, and you stay in the car with the kids. <laughs> it's fine for about 30 seconds. But after 20 minutes of Carmelina popping in the shops, the kids are seriously whinging, and I'm starting to lose it. After about 40 minutes of popping, <laughs> I'm ready to kill someone. That's after only 40 minutes of whinging from my children. So can you imagine poor Aaron? He's been waiting with the whinging Israelites for 40 days while Moses is up on the mountain, bleating and whinging. He must have been beside himself. No wonder then... He gives them what they ask for. He does what Israel want. He makes a calf to represent the Lord who's carried them out of Egypt. Verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, 
These are your gods, O Israel. It's actually a bit unclear in the Hebrew. It's the, it's the word, I don't know if you've ever heard the word Elohim. It's a plural word, but it probably is singular. He's probably saying, this is your God, O Israel. And if you look at a New American translation or something, that's the way it'll come out. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, so they've got their God now represented. And then Israel, they start to worship God their way, the way they know. Now, of course... Israel haven't yet heard all the stuff about the tabernacle and the priests and, and everything like that. That Moses is still up the mountain. They've not got that information yet. Although, uh, admittedly, they did hear the bit about not making idols. That was pretty clear, second of the Ten Commandments. And, and they did have all the stuff about the festivals that God does want them to celebrate. Passover, unleavened bread, harvest, in-gathering. They've got a pretty good idea of, of how God wants them to worship. But, well, that was all from Moses and who, knew, who knows if he knew what he was talking about? He's dead in the desert. And so Israel, they do what they know. They do what they've been familiar with and they have a big old Egyptian pagan festival for God with lots of what the NIV politely calls revelry. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now this is not some pagan god, it's a festival to the Lord. Just you now you can see him. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, to say that God is not impressed would be a significant understatement. God is furious. He is livid. Ropeable. He, he, he hates what Israel are doing. He decides that's it with Israel. He's going to destroy Israel. He's ready to, to wipe them off the face of the planet and start again. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, your people, <laughs> because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them. And have made themselves idols, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God wants to destroy Israel once and for all. And he'd have done it too. He would have done it. Except that in verses 11 to 14, Moses intervenes on Israel's behalf. He, he begs God to spare Israel. He says, destroying Israel will dishonour you, God. Everyone will think you can't rescue your people. He, he reminds God of his promises and, and graciously, graciously, God relents. Well, Moses then heads on down the mountain. But when he sees the reality of what has happened, he is furious as well. And so he gets to work. He, he smashes the stone tablets of the covenant. The covenant's already been broken. It's like a, maybe a, 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 a cheated spouse throwing their, throwing their wedding ring away. He chucks the tablets down, smashes them, and then, and then he totally destroys the idol. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp, verse 19, and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. 
Next, Moses confronts Aaron. He says, what happened? And Aaron comes up with a wimpish and not entirely honest excuse. Just notice uh, what he does with the truth here to make it look like he did nothing wrong. Verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. True. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. True. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. True. Then they gave me the gold. True. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Uh, Just compare with what happened uh, back in verse 3 and 4. It says there, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool it's not exactly the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth is it anyway Moses uh, then he calls to see if anyone is willing to stand with him stand up for the Lord Uh, people from the tribe of Levi come come to him and he orders them he orders them to start killing their fellow Israelites three thousand of them are slaughtered with swords And when they've done it, Moses says, he says something that I think is pretty confronting. He says, good on you, fellas. He says, you killers, you are blessed by God. You've put God and the right worship of God before even the lives of your own family. Better to kill your sons. Better to kill your relatives. Better to kill your brothers than to let God be wrongly worshipped. Verse 25. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Moses then goes back up Mount Sinai, and he, and he begs God for mercy. But this time God won't listen. God is so angry that he will not let what has happened go unpunished. And he strikes Israel with a plague. It's in verse 35. The Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. That's pretty severe, isn't it? I think God has made his point here clearly, don't you? He is not into idolatry. He's not into people worshipping him in any other way than what he says. He's not into creativity when it comes to worship. When it comes to worship, it is God's way or the highway. You do it the way he says or you're in deep, deep trouble. God hates idolatry. I don't think I'm being too strong there, am I? God hates idolatry idolatry 
All right, well, let's come back to the issue that we started with then. The exclusivity of Christianity. People say Christians are wrong to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. They say it's arrogant to think you have the truth. They say it's intolerant and dangerous to impose your views on other people. They claim the moral high ground. We're right, you guys are awful. But as you can see from your outline, I think there are a couple of things that need to be said. Two things that need to be said. The first is a, is a, it's a bit of a philosophical point about the argument itself. I think it's a very simple point, but a philosophical point about the argument itself, <coughs> which I just want to briefly run by you. And then the second comes straight out of our passage today. <coughs> so you see where we're going? Dealing with this issue of uh, whether it is wrong for Christians and immoral for Christians to claim that Jesus is the only way. So point number one. Point number one. This argument is self-contradictory. It contradicts itself. Let me explain. You can make the claim that no religion has the truth. Okay, you can make that religious claim. No religion has the truth. You can say it's arrogant for people to claim that they're right. But can you see you've contradicted yourself? You say no religion has the truth, but you think that your religious view, the religious view that no religion has the truth, is true. You believe no one else is allowed to claim that they're right, and you believe you are right in saying no one else can claim that they are right. What you're really saying is this. You're saying, no one has the truth except me. You're saying, no one is right except me. And at that point, you're being just as exclusive as anyone else. You arrogantly think that you're right and you've got the truth. And, and the th this thing about telling people they can't impose their religious views, as we're starting to see in legislation now in countries around the world, this idea that you cannot impose your religious view, that's contradictory as well. How can you impose on people that they can't impose their views? You're doing, you're doing what you say they... Let me say it again. You're doing what you say they can't do. You're imposing your view that they can't impose their views onto them. Can you see the contradiction? Can you see how it's, a, it's just a false claim to the moral high ground? Again, no one's allowed to impose their views except you. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says... If you insist that no one can determine which beliefs are right and wrong, then why should we believe what you are saying? The reality is that we all make truth claims of some sort. It may be hard to weigh them responsibly, but we have no alternative but to try to do so. Do you see the point? Let me try to put it in one complicated sentence. All right? The idea that no religion has the truth and no religion should impose itself on others is itself a religion that claims to have the truth and imposes itself on others. Do you get that? Self-contradictory. And it's a false claim to the moral high ground. False claim. Second thing to say is this. Second point. Second point, I think this is the point that comes pretty clearly out of Exodus chapter 32. Uh, the God of the Bible doesn't agree that any way of worshipping him is fine. It's pretty obvious from Exodus 32, isn't it? God doesn't look at the golden calf and say, hmm, here are some sincere worshippers doing what they think is best. Aren't they lovely? No way. God looks at them and he is absolutely furious. The Bible is perfectly clear. God demands to be worshipped only his way. All that stuff about how people go on with how it's arrogant and intolerant and dangerous to say you have the true way to worship God, it's self-contradictory nonsense. It's a false claim to the moral high ground, but more than that, it is itself very, very dangerous because the true God takes very seriously how people worship him. God hates idolatry. People who worship God their own way will face the fury of God and there cannot be anything more dangerous than that. 
Okay. So how can we worship God properly? How can we avoid idolatry? How can we avoid God's fury? How can we worship God the true way? Friends, it can only be through Jesus. It can only be through Jesus. God has set down here in Exodus exactly the way he wants to be worshipped. He's told us his laws. He's told us what he wants in worship. Tabernacle, priests, sacrifices, Sabbath. The way to worship God properly is to obey his laws and to have the right priest offer the right sacrifice for you. And nowadays that can only happen through Jesus, can't it? We've seen it over these last few weeks. No one else, no one else comes even close to following what God's word says here in Exodus. The Jews today, the Jews today, they don't even try to follow what God says in the Bible. Judaism today has no room for the vast majority of God's laws. They can keep about 50 of the 613. And, and it's got no place for a tabernacle and no place for priests and no place for sacrifice. Judaism today is a new religion. It dates from after 70 AD and it's got nothing to do with what God wants here in Exodus. And you think the Jews have got it wrong? Well, everybody else has got it wronger. It's even more true of any other religion or irreligion. No one is even trying to obey what God's word says here. Everyone is idolatrous. The Bible says that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And the Bible says, the Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. The only one who has obeyed what God wants is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's obeyed God's word to the letter. Put that one on your outline. You see there in your outline? Where am I? Right-hand side, top right-hand side. Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Without sin. Always obeyed God's law. And the Bible says that Jesus is the true priest who serves God in the ultimate tabernacle and who offered the one true sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the reality that all this stuff in Exodus foreshadowed. And so the great news is when we rely on Jesus, the Bible says that God will save us from his anger and it says that he will accept us as his people who can, and it says it here, serve him, who can worship him. On your outline, can you see that last verse? Those last verses. When Christ came as high priest... He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one who's obeyed God's law. Jesus is the only one who can be our priest. Jesus is the only one who's offered the one sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from God's fury on our idolatry. Jesus is the only one who can cleanse us so that we may serve the living God through him. Uh, some people might not like the idea that, that God could be so exclusive. Some people might not like the idea of a God who insists that we do it his way. Some people might not like the idea of a God who gets angry and destroys people. Some people might even say... 
and there's a person I'm in correspondence with now who says this, I refuse to believe in a God who's like that. I tell you what, I'm not that brave. I've got to say for me, if this is the way God is, I don't want to be on his wrong side. This is the way the real God is. If there's a real God and he's set down how he wants to be worshipped and if he will not tolerate any digression, I'm not about to argue with him. Are you? Seriously? Are you seriously going to take on the God of the universe and say, I don't care what you want, I'm going to worship you my way? I don't want to face his anger. Not a fight I can win. Friends, whether we like it or not, God is deeply concerned that he be worshipped his way. God hates idolatry and the fact is only Jesus has done the worship God wants and only Jesus, therefore, can save us from God's anger and give us right relationship with God. I'm sorry if that's politically incorrect. I'm sorry if it sounds arrogant. I'm sorry if it sounds intolerant. I'm sorry if people don't like it. But friends, that's the way it is. Jesus alone is the way to God and I wouldn't dare to expose you to the dreadful danger of hell by telling you anything else. Any other way, any other way, and it'll be for you like it was for Israel here in Exodus. Friends, we need to stop with the embarrassment. It's too serious for that. We need to stop with the rationalisations. People are not okay on their own. People can't worship God any way they choose. On their own, people, that's the people we know, that's our families, that's our friends, that's our workmates, on their own, people will face the fury of God. Jesus is the only way to God, just Jesus, exclusively Jesus. We've got to put our faith in him alone and we've got to warn other people to do the same. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, we confess that you are holy and righteous and pure and uh, you deserve all honour and glory and praise. And if you want worship to be done your way, then that is your right. Our Father, we're sorry for ever presuming that we could come to you in any other way than through the mercy of Jesus. And we're sorry for ever assuming that anybody else could either. Our Father, give us the fear that makes us flee to Christ alone and that makes us call others to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.